Welcome back to the In The Lead Show. My name is Jennifer Sang, and you are listening to episode number 27. In today's episode, I talk to Kate Arms, who is an agile coach. She's a podcaster. Um, she loves leadership arts and um, does a lot of really cool stuff. And Kate and I have met over the last couple of years on Twitter, and I love her perspectives, and she's also a fellow coach. So I thought it'd be great to bring her on the show today. We are going to talk about innovation and business agility. Now, from that standpoint of innovation and business agility, we talk about how to integrate all parts of ourself, all parts of our being into being the best leader we can be and how that plays a role in how agile we can be and how that plays a role in to innovation. And innovation is a big buzzword that we use a lot in corporate America, especially in tech. We want to innovate. We want to be agile. But what does it take to really truly step into that space? It, this conversation with Kate was really fascinating and I hope you you get a lot out of it because as I was reflecting on this conversation with Kate, I was just um, loved all of the little tidbits that she had to offer. Now, a little bit more about Kate. Kate is, has spent the last 35 years studying how creative and sensitive people create success, successful organizations that honor and respect the inner lives of the diverse people who run them. Along the way, she has raised four kids, written four books, started two podcasts, and drunk an enormous amount of coffee. These days, you can find her at Ecobee, where she works as an agile coach and on the Leadership Arts Review podcast, which she co-hosts and produces. She is a phenomenal person, and I really enjoyed our conversation, so I hope you enjoy it as well. Don't forget, before listening to the podcast, go over to Twitter and follow the show. Go to YouTube hit like, hit subscribe. Would love to hear any feedback you have about the show or if you want to connect and talk about any of the topics we have discussed on the show. Also, there is an In the Lead Show newsletter that goes out every week. So it usually recaps some of the conversations that we have on the podcast and also dives a little bit deeper into some mental health topics and different leadership topics. So definitely subscribe to that. It's in the show notes wherever you are listening to it today. So you can click on that and subscribe and welcome to the show. To the In the Lead show. My name is Jennifer Sang, and I'm here today with Kate Arms, who is a coach and co-host of Leadership Arts Review Podcast. Welcome to the show, Kate. Jennifer, so glad to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited for our conversation. Um, Kate and I met um, over the last, I would say, year or two through the Twitter sphere, um, and just so delightful. Always your insights. You're a fellow coach as well, so I love that aspect as well. So I'm happy you could join the podcast today. Um, before we get started on our topic, which is around business agility and innovation, I would like to get to know you a little bit more. So who is Kate? So that's a great question. It's a very complicated question, like it is with every human being. So I'm just going to give you like the snippet that's relevant to our conversation <laughs> um, today. Uh, so uh, I started in my uh, early days as a theater artist. So I am uh, sort of artist by temperament, 
in many ways, uh, and a family of computer scientists. So the tech and the art right there from the very beginning. Uh, and uh, after many twists and turns as I tried to figure out who I wanted to be as an adult, I found myself in the land of creativity coaching. And uh, so I found myself working with people who either were trying to figure out how to make money from their art or people who were like, I was creative when I was a kid and now I'm really serious and boring. And like, I wanna be playful again. And so those were the two places that I started coaching. Uh, and over time, I realized that this place of like the recovering serious person who wants to be playful uh, and the world that I had grown up in, in technology were a great place to merge. And in the tech world, the most interesting coaching with engineers happens with uh, Agile. And so I was like, okay, Agile coach, here I come. And so these days I do some volunteer creativity coaching conversations around innovation. I'm an Agile coach by day and uh, I have more children than I expected to have. So they keep me busy the rest of the time. <laughs> there you go. There you go. They will keep you busy. Um, I love your story and the evolution. I love you just saying that you kind of had to figure out a way to blend all these different worlds because I feel like that resonates definitely with me. And I feel like a lot of people where it's like, we're trying to figure out like, how do I kind of kind of blend all of these experiences and things that I have around me with also the person that I want to be also that's important. Yeah. Um, it's, and it's a real sort of self-awareness journey and it's this mm -hmm. place and it's about who am I? Who do I want to be? What is the world? Like how do other people respond to me? What will make me money? Sort of all of those things have to come together. And I had these two worlds of the art and the science that I really didn't want to say no to either of them. Wow. That sounds really powerful. Now, how do you bring all the experience and passion that you have from the creative creativity coaching standpoint and bring that into what you're doing now in the agile coaching with engineers and kind of more on the science side. So the interesting thing about, uh, agile coaching and software development these days is there's a real appreciation for how important playfulness is in the innovation space when you're doing cutting edge technology. And there's always been this sort of culture of software developers who are uh, video gamers, role players, LARPers, uh, that kind of really creative play. And also these really pattern-driven algorithm, get the, you know, you need the line of code to say what the line of code does with very precise syntax, or it doesn't do what you want it to do. Uh, they seem to go together and sort of that's the sort of stereotypical sort of software developer from sort of when I was a child. Uh, what you find now uh, is that sense of playfulness has grown. Uh, one of the conversations I had just earlier this morning, in fact, was uh, about people at work who knit and crochet. And that's that same patterning. It's that creative patterning just with a different medium. So there's already a cohort of people who understand that creation is creation in whatever medium 
you use. What I do that I think of as sneaky deep is that I'm a dancer by training. Like my early days were as a dancer and a singer. And so I have a relationship with a body that is not common mm. in people who have grown up through uh, programming and who have spent a lot of time sitting still with a keyboard. Mm. And so when you're dealing with anxiety, which shows up, we'll talk about it. It shows up all the time in the innovation space. Anxiety lives in the body. And so a huge thing that I do is actually just to walk into the room with a dancer's awareness of my body, or even to show up on a video call with a dancer's awareness of my body. And that actually settles the space. It's pretty cool. That is really cool. Well, tell me more about that dancer's awareness of body. Like, what does that mean? So, um, it means that I'm always present. I'm not always present. I often get like cut on my head, but when I've got a dancer's awareness of my body, I actually can feel the edges of my skin and I can feel a connection to my core and to where my head is in space and where my arms are. And I'm just alive in a very embodied way. I'm not just a mind. Yeah. And sounds like it, you're shifting it from kind of that really cerebral kind of logical kind of head space into more of kind of the rest of your being really your body, everything. Yeah. And one of the things that we know from neuroscience these days is that we're not bodies carrying around minds or minds that are trapped in bodies. We actually are an embodied cognitive thing. <laughs> Yeah. And this being processes information in the body and has this consciousness that can process information too. And they work together really well when we can connect them. Yeah, definitely feels, I've always felt it to be almost like this integration process where it's, yeah, they're not separate, but how do we bring them all together to work together in a way that feels to me at least more like whole and connected and grounded and not because I, I I've suffered a lot with anxiety in my life as well. And I know how much that can over consume you. And I know that yeah. at least from my own experience, working with engineers, there's many engineers who do suffer with anxiety and I think have trouble kind of getting back into that kind of really, um, body wholeness space where they're not just thinking completely about, you know, the code they're writing or the very logical part of their, of their being. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting is how many software developers have, uh, ADHD or, um, low support needs autism. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that's not a surprise to me, the, the parts of our bodies and our brain wiring that make artists sensitive to color and sound and texture and taste and the sensory pieces, that's the same place that uh, we look at. And that's the same sensitivity to what is happening now is not what we want it to be. And the tools of engineering and software development are ways of bridging that gap from where we are to where we want to be. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that happens if we're technologically minded 
And if we're smart, and especially if we're boys, as children, we get rewarded for the A in the academic class mm. for the good marks. Yeah. And we may be slow to, because we're rewarded for that, we're slow to develop some of the physical things mm -hmm. because we just prioritize our time and you can't actually do anything hundred yeah. percent of the time. And you just, we prioritize. And so, and boys get rewarded for getting out of their heads. Infant yeah. boys cry more than infant girls. Infant boys are more emotionally sensitive than infant girls. And young boys are punished more for being sensitive than young mm. girls. So yeah. boys compartmentalize their feelings at a very young age. And so we should not be surprised that men have a hard time getting into their bodies and feeling their feelings because we told them as small boys that they needed to stop doing that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I agree. I mean, I think over time, society and culture is getting better, but I, I, I know even in my lifetime, I can remember those types of, you know, just perceptions towards m my brother who tends to be a little bit more on the sensitive side and more artistic, more, but it was always like, well, why don't you play sports? Why aren't you, you know, you shouldn't cry and get up. Like, what are you doing? Like boys don't cry. Right. Like I can even remember that in, even in my lifetime, but I see that I think we're starting to recognize, um, those yeah, biases I mean, that we have. We're starting to recognize it. It's, it's slow going and it's hard yeah. to change. I mean, I, I have four kids, three of them are boys and I remember I had done a very sort of, you are who you are and I will embrace whatever you want kind of parenting with all of my children. And then I sent them off to preschool. And in particular, one of the boys who'd really liked sparkly things was like, nope, I'm done. Oh. And it was not from any of the adults. It was that there were other kids mm -hmm. who were the conduit for this yeah. way of being in the world and thinking about sensitivity and delight that mm -hmm. were just not what I was trying to instill at all. Right. Yeah. I think it's reinforced, you know, everywhere in our culture and yeah. even, you know, Susan David, who does a lot of research and emotional agility, especially, um, she talks about how we ask our boys, what did you do today? What did you accomplish? And we ask our girls, how did you, how do you feel? What did, or what happened to you today? Almost like, and it's like, I think even from like that very young age, like simple things, like just do we, Oh, ask wow. Now what happened to you versus what did you do? Language is such mm -hmm. an interesting one in the leadership context. I hadn't even thought about that because of course that's putting, um, that leadership model of what are you doing in the boy and putting mm -hmm. the, you are a victim of circumstances right there from the beginning. Right. And I think, I, I mean, I've seen it so many times too, where, yeah, you'll, parents will ask their sons, like, well, what did you do today? Who'd you play with? What, you know, what it's all action oriented and it's all goal. What did you accomplish? What did you, and I've seen girls where it's just like, Oh, honey, were you, were you sad today? Don't cry. Like this very 
almost um, kind of coddling and, but, it, but yeah. I, I see what you're saying. Like, it feels like we're putting that lens on them from the very beginning. Yeah. I'm and- thinking of a guy that I knew uh, when I was still in the theater world and he developed a program that went into juvenile detention centers. So he was working with inner city, um, preteen and teenage uh, kids who were in the, the facilities, institutionalized detention centers, not, and he did Shakespeare with them. And he used like the fight scenes of Shakespeare to resensitize these children to the power of violence and to actually connect them to the emotional associations about violence, to actually resensitize them so that they didn't go back out into society numb to violence. Mm -hmm. And after a performance of, so these kids would, he would work with them and they would come back to the theater company that he was his home ground and they would do a performance for the professional actors. And it was the most powerful performance of these scenes that I have ever seen because they got violence in a way that most of the actors that you see do this stuff have never gotten it. I mean, some of them do, but most of them haven't. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there was a discussion afterwards. Then we asked him, what gave you the wherewithal to do this? And he said, my mother used to ask me how I felt every night before I went to bed. Wow. He traced that work back to his mother asked him how he felt every day. It's so important. And it's so, I mean, simple, right? Maybe in the moment you wouldn't think like, oh, that's going to have a profound impact on somebody's life. But even just, because I feel like even oftentimes, even adults, like we have trouble recognizing and labeling what we're feeling, what we're experiencing. Right. And that's another part. I love Susan David's work. I've followed a lot of her work over the years and just thinking about, yeah. And just thinking that people don't have even the vocabulary to describe what it is that's happening to them. What are they experiencing? What are they, what's around them? It's very, you know, a lot of times in the research, it's shown it's very basic language and it's all very, you know, simplistic is how do we get more nuanced in that way? And asking those questions at such a young age gives you that ability to really start kind of tapping in and understanding and then labeling what you're feeling or what you're going through. Yeah. There's a really nice emotions wheel that I use in some of the work that I do uh, that has three layers from the center. And in the center, it's like five basic emotions. It's fear, happy, sad, scared, uh, fear, scared. They're the same. It's five anyway. Um, and, And it's the really basic language. And then the next layer out is slightly more nuanced. um, And instead of five, each of those is divided into three different sorts of sets of things. And then Mm -hmm. they're like six for each of those five in the next Mm -hmm. ring out. And when I'm working with people and trying to help them get that self-awareness and the nuances around this, I will say, if you're finding this difficulty, just stay in the center. Like don't move out until you're certain about like, Mm-hmm. I got the center down and then work on moving out because yeah. it's true. It's about nuance. Yeah, it really yeah. is. And giving or having that skill to be able to say, and, and, you know, with coaching, right. It's always like you start 
kind of on that surface level, people normally talk at that level, right. Where it's like, I'm feeling something I'm like really upset, or I'm really pissed off about something. You start peeling back the layers and helping them get more nuanced. You start to really uncover kind of what's kind of behind that. And for me, at least a lot of times I discover it's either some kind of fear or trauma from, you know, childhood or sometime in their life. Um, but helping them get to that point is better than just saying, okay, well, honey, why don't you just go have a latte and, you know, you'll be fine and, you know, you'll be happy, right? We'll shift you from being pissed off to happy. Yay. Life's great. But when that pattern starts continuing and that person doesn't have the language or the ability to really understand like, Hey, well, well, what's that feeling trying to tell me? Or where's that coming from? I feel like, especially in innovation, especially when we're talking about business agility, any kind of agility, if we can help people kind of get to that point more quickly, then they're able to kind of move through it instead of just kind of carrying almost feels like luggage to me. I always use that metaphor. It's like, I'm picking up your luggage or your suitcase and I'm carrying it with you. And then I pick up another one. And then by, you know, halfway down, you know, the journey, I have 30 suitcases I'm carrying and I can't go anymore. Right. There is no resilience. The thing about business agility is that business agility comes from being able to pivot. And in Mm -hmm. order to pivot, you have to actually be centered where you are. If you're not centered where you are, you actually can't pivot. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what all of this stuff about like coming back to the body, because we're talking about coming back to the body Mm -hmm. here actually does is it actually makes you a person who's able to pivot. Mm -hmm. And if you're a person who's able to pivot and you're able to be in collaboration with other people who are able to pivot, then you start to be able to build a system that can pivot, but you can't actually have business agility without actually having agile people at the heart of the work that's happening. And innovation happens through people too. Like all of this happens through people and people are bodies. And so all of this actually happens through our body and that space between where we want to be and where we are makes us uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be able to be with that feeling of discomfort. So all of this stuff comes back to Can I actually be with who I am right now at a level that I keep wanting it to not be true because I want it to be easier to walk into spaces where people are uncomfortable in their bodies and get things done. Because if you're not used to this stuff, it feels totally weird and irrelevant and like a waste of time. And so actually working on the like, willingness to even consider that this might possibly be useful. That's the hardest part of the work that I do, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. The readiness part. I, I agree. And and, and anything in business for me, I always think about that readiness part is always the hardest, whether it's change, whether it's um, any kind of change, right. Um, Whether it's, you know, even agile, there's a lot of, you know, change and it's very fast paced. Um, I feel like that readiness piece is, yeah, I mean, that that's always at the foundation for me of what's kind of being that, putting up that roadblock or that resistance to 
actually moving into that space. Um, and I would imagine, and you know, one of the original topics we, I reached out to you about was highly sensitive people, because this is something that I'm really passionate about just because I've spent, like I told you so much of my life thinking that there was something wrong with me. Like I'm really sensitive. I'm really reactive. I get a lot of information in and I don't know how to handle it. And I thought, wow, there's something really wrong with me. And one of the things I've noticed over time working with a lot of engineers myself is a lot of them too are very highly sensitive. And I think what's helped me the most, what was the most impactful in my life in the beginning of my therapy journey was I had a somatic therapist who her whole focus was teaching me how to get back into my body and how to actually just be really present. Even when like your body is literally like going, like it almost felt like it was like going berserk or short circuiting. Like I could just feel all the sensations and it just felt like I was ready to like, I don't know, implode in some way. Um, but just really training myself to get back into my body and like recognize, okay, what am I feeling right now? So the integration part again, right. Of here's my body, my brain. Do you understand what's happening in the body right now? Scan your feet, scan your legs, scan your arms. What does your stomach feel like? I mean, very simple. I still do these practices to this day. I recommend it to anybody. I do them all the time. And I, and you know, one of the things, the pandemic, like I doubled the amount of time that I was trying to spend doing this because it's actually how you manage anxiety and the pandemic pandemic has us all anxious. I mentioned ADHD and uh, low supports needs autism Mm -hmm. um, because we don't tend to see a lot of high support needs autism in the business world because it's sufficiently challenging. Mm -hmm. Um, We're seeing some people finding ways of making accommodations for that, but it's, it's hard and we're not great. Um, Mm -hmm. The theory so I've got two autistic kids. So that's mm-hmm. part of how I make this connection. Um, and the theory that resonates in terms of explaining autism and that actually matches what I've seen in my kids because autism is diagnosed based on trauma responses to the world not functioning for autistic kids um, right. and not based on what's causing the mismatch. Right. Uh, what the theory that actually explains why there's a mismatch is that it's a form of high sensitivity mm-hmm. and it just manifests differently in terms of what form of trauma responses happen. Um, so in ADHD, part of why it's so hard focusing on the things that you don't want to focus on. And so easy focusing on the things that you do want to focus on is a sensitivity to all of these uncomfortable feelings that I need to get away from. Yeah. And all of these comfortable feelings that are so much better than Mm -hmm. the uncomfortable feelings. And so part of my journey has been mindful movement practice. So similarly somatic. So I was a ballet dancer. So that was not about understanding my inner experience. That was about looking perfect on the outside. Yeah. And then I started jazz, which was a little bit more expressive and a little much richer sort of expressive and richer are the wrong words, but there was a little bit more access for me to what was coming from inside as I was trying to, to perform what was going on. And now I don't do any structured form. I do entirely improvisational dance 
And I got there through uh, a body of work called Interplay and a body of work called Authentic Movement uh, and through yoga and through a form of yoga that involved hold the pose, then let your body move in response to it and then hold another pose and then let your body respond. But it was that let your body respond that Mm -hmm. actually made me able to be like, oh, that's the impulse coming from me. Yeah. As opposed to the impulse I was putting in. Yeah. That's a powerful, powerful realization because it's, yeah, I mean, I, I, I could just sense as you were talking, going through that story and relating on my own experience about how almost just accepting and allowing it. Cause Mm -hmm. for me, for a long time, it felt like I had to control it. I had to, oh, there's these weird sensations coming up my body. I have to like, you know, push it down, figure it out, make it better, whatever it is, just whoop, like, but allowing it just to come and just kind of be there for a little bit and just allowing it to kind of move with you and through you. And I can definitely see the connection and correlation with dance and how you're, you're talking about really having that, your body kind of be the leader almost and kind of take that center stage where I feel like a lot of times we want to stay kind of up here and figure it out. Yeah. One of the things that came to me during my coach training was uh, the presence-based coaching and the coaching that actually sort of sees the whole person with the body uh, is so, so important for analytical people. Analytical people, so here's an interesting therapy-related thing. Analytical people don't do well with CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, which is sort of the big, like everybody's like, cognitive behavior therapy is great. it doesn't work for analytical people. And the reason that it doesn't work for analytical people is that it's missing the mindfulness and embodied component. So yeah. for people who are listening, who are interested in therapy, dialectical behavior therapy is like CBT plus mindfulness. Um, and kind of like, <laughs> on a, but from a coaching perspective, uh, we talk about the language of like the places that we get in our way. And we might call mm-hmm. it our inner critic or our saboteurs or our gremlins or whatever language that we like. Some of us like poetic language. Some of us like very sort of literal mm-hmm. language and, and sort of fixed language. And uh, a good coach uses their client's language. So, right. <laughs> um, right. But all of those sort of voices that tell us to do the thing that come from fear that are, what are you thinking about? Why should you do this? Who are you to be able to say this? Don't do that. It's scary. You know, hold off, like be really careful, like put all your ducks in the row first. Those voices uh, have all of our analytical skill, the same way that the voices of look at the opportunity. um, Isn't this fun? Look at how capable you are. You can totally learn this they have the same set of intellectual skills. Mm-hmm. And so for really skilled analytical people, if they're not already naturally optimistic and they're not in touch with sort of the fullness of who they are, mm-hmm. they talk themselves into their ruts. Yeah. Oh yeah. I and- watch it in coaching Kate. So many times I'm like, Oh my gosh, we're talking ourselves back into that same space. And, and the, only way out of that space is actually to find a way that's a connection to our open whole selves. And that's where we're creative. Um, And that's where our prefrontal cortex is online. 
so that mm. that's the part of our brain that is actually able to be creative. Mm. And it takes fear reduction and anxiety management. Yeah. And if we don't get into the body, we can say all mm. of the right things from that scared place. Yeah. Yeah. And then they turn into the wrong things. Right. They can very easily. Right. Um, Cause they don't act, they don't actually open us up to go, okay, here's this opportunity. How do we take advantage of it? Yeah. And the piece that I think is really important for business agility. Uh, and I think the place where coaches uh, can get into trouble if they're not careful is there's a tendency for coaches to be like, we're the optimistic ones. Let's go for the positivity. Let's cheerlead and go through. And the analytical sort of safe business agility piece is we need to make sure that the lights stay on. Mm -hmm. There's a baseline level of threat and security that we actually do need to worry about. And we cannot positivity our way out of that. And we can look closely at that and look at where the edges of that are and say, is this thing actually necessary for my safety or security? We can get curious about that. Mm -hmm. But if we don't take care of that, then actually we are being reckless. Yeah. Yeah. And for business agility, we can't be reckless. We have to take calculated risks and that getting curious about what is the stuff that we actually have to take care of and what is the stuff that it feels like we have to take care of, but actually it's stopping us from being able to pivot as much as we need to. And that's the place where the questioning is really, really valuable. And once again, we're back into risk management and anxiety. Yeah. I mean, I think that's where, honestly, I mean, now that, you know, I've been in a corporate setting for a long time, I've done my own therapy work. I've tried to, you know, be as open and mindful as possible. But as you start doing more and more of that stuff, you start seeing it in others. And it's so, I remember it just being so interesting to me being in meetings where, you know, there's people arguing about, you know, what, what, what direction to take the vision and what's happening and how to, you know, rectify it. And just seeing all of that kind of anxiety and underlying fear that actually had nothing to do with what we were actually talking about, but it was fully present. Every single person in that room, it was fully present. And I just sat back and thought, oh my gosh, like how we, we can't keep doing this to, I mean, this is defeating the entire purpose of us trying to make this transformation, trying to be agile as a business, trying to innovate. We absolutely cannot. And I see this a lot in business actually, when it's like, let's say we made a mistake or we failed at something. We don't really acknowledge the failure. We're just kind of really trying to quickly pivot into the next transformation. I don't think people realize that there are a lot of people who actually need to grieve the process. And I'm actually always talking to my executive about this a lot was create more space for people. You especially, and I'm speaking for my almost kind of selfishly, because I'm like, look, I don't process information that way. You can't just come in and like, say, dump a bunch of stuff on me and then expect me to immediately be like, oh, hey, yeah. or Hey, we're getting rid of that project. Now I want you to go over here and expect me just to jump. I need time. I need, and I love that you're talking about curiosity because I think that developing that practice helps you kind of get to that anxiety and the underlying fear and helps you kind of uncover some of those things. Uh, I love William Bridges model of transition 
for mm. helping people see the need for grieving the old way. And then there's this messy middle before you have the new way that actually solidifies because he really did a great job of articulating that need to actually wrap up and say goodbye to mm-hmm. the old thing. And the thing that I think it's really important for leaders in innovation space to know is that your more creative employees are likely to need the most time to transition because what makes them creative is that being sensitive. And so they're related. And so the cost of their ability to see the possibilities is if you take the rug that they've been standing on out from under them, they actually have to come back to the ground, move over to where the rug has been placed down, and then they can like plant their feet solidly and start being creative again. And so the, there is actually a connection between probably your most creative UX designers and your most creative uh, developers and the people who might need some help. Yeah. Just having the time mm-hmm. to adjust to yeah. change. And it's the cost of their brilliance. Mm-hmm. And they go together. And the thing that I love as a coach is I love helping those people who have that sensitivity expand their capacity to handle the sensitivity so that they have more capacity for faster change. Because that's the heart of agility is when you're really creative people have that sensitivity and they have the capacity to be with it as things shift, then you're really agile. Yeah. Well, what was coming up for me as you were uh, speaking was about recentering again is about, I mean, if you can recenter people and people or people can recenter themselves more quickly, then they can pivot more quickly. And a lot of what was also coming up for me was thinking like in business, I know we're always talking about fast, like the speed of change is fast, transformation is fast, innovation is fast. But sometimes I feel like we need to go slow to go faster. And I feel like we're always just jumping into the, like, let's go into fifth gear before we realize we have to go through second and third first, and maybe stay there a while, but eventually it will be better for the business because they'll be centered and they can pivot more quickly. Because the worst thing that happens that I see is people try to pivot and they're not centered and they're not ready. And we still go in that direction. And then it ends up failing yeah, miserably. Because half of them and, still is, is in the old place and half yeah, of them is in the new place. And always. they're stretched too thin. And yeah, I mean, there's constantly that agility is seen as fast. And fast mm-hmm. is a byproduct of agility. Fast mm-hmm. emerges. The making things fast is misdirection. Yeah. And if you think about like dog training and agility training in dogs, I like this a lot. What you see is sort of exercises and activities and ramps that you go up to practice. And the dog eventually is able to like do all of these things everywhere in the wild and like could do all of the things. But the training mm-hmm. is these very structured 
mm-hmm. pieces of more and more difficult terrain. Right. And we can't expect ourselves or other people to navigate the most difficult terrain if they haven't done the training. Mm-hmm. And the training always happens in this moment. Yeah. And, and in fact, the training is to be in this moment and deal with whatever is here. And so I went hiking in the Alps, uh, uh, did the Tour de Mont Blanc. So it's a seven day Ooh. hike around Mont Blanc, not yeah. at highest altitude, uh, completely undertrained. And I was just over ambitious. And on day two, which was our first peak towards the highest altitude that we were getting to, I was completely like, my body did not want to be hiking that steep a mountain under that level of oxygen in the air. My body, it was not happy. And I got through because of two things. One was I was committed to not being airlifted off that mountain. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I could see myself telling myself that same thing. I am not being I in that situation. Not being airlifted off that mountain. And I knew that if I took the next step enough times, I would get to the peak. Mm-hmm. And so I would yeah. take as I would take a step or two or three, recover and take a step or two or three. Yeah. And I crested. <laughs> the peak of the pass we got to the next sort of high altitude refuge and my guide was like pasta in you now (laughs) (laughs) that's Um, funny but it is it's that we get through these things in the moment yeah yeah and yeah we go through it we yeah I agree fast is a byproduct and I think yeah we meet it in the moment we get through it in the moment we feel it, handle it in the moment. Everything is in the moment. And I think that's such a great story because in business, a lot of times I feel like we are too forward looking where it's like, we need to focus on our 12 month goals or six months goals. We're constantly dry, even quarterly goals. Well, there's a lot going on breaking down right now today, like in the business and people are suffering. People are, you know, burnt out. We're not even thinking about that. We're still driving towards what is that end goal for the quarter, whatever result we need to make. And I always feel like there's a huge disconnect there that we could, you know, and, and be even more agile if we were to able to meet those people in the moment, if they think, were able to. I think it's, the, it's that need to like figure out what perspective we're taking at any given time and uh, to come in and out what really works from an agile perspective is for the people who are actually doing the day-to-day work to come out, see the big picture, figure out where they are in the landscape, figure out which direction is really the right direction that they're going, and then figure out what the next step is, then go heads down for lack of a better phrase, but like, Mm -hmm. okay, I've looked up, now I'm down, I'm gonna do the work. Mm -hmm. I do this piece of work, And then I look up and see what have I accomplished? What has changed since I got there? Are we still going in the same direction? That sort of thing. So an awful lot of the agile practices are actually about protecting that the focus of the people who are doing the day-to-day development work 
for those periods of, I'm just doing a little bit now, I will come up and look around later. I'm trusting you, managers, visionaries, leaders, planners, to be scoping out the, the market and how things are changing and uh, getting the customer feedback, all of that stuff. So that when I come up, you can tell me whether I'm still gonna supposed to be heading in the same direction as I should be, or whether in fact I should be heading in a different direction. And I'm gonna come up and I'm gonna tell you, okay, so this is what I managed to accomplish. And we're gonna have a conversation there where somebody else holds the big vision and I'm like, okay, so here's where we are right now. Yeah, right. But there's that check-in process and there's that- check-in post. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the, the best- things about agile, in my opinion, is it does give you kind of those short bursts and gives people the space to kind of come up and say, okay, I finished this. Where, where are we at? What's the direction? Where do I need to go next? What's changed? What, you know, we have that postmortem or we have that, you know, that, that moment to be able to say, okay, now what, where I feel like in business, a lot of times it's just kind of running at the same speed, really, really fast. And you don't have time to catch up. And I was actually the metaphor that was coming to my head when you were talking about your story in the Alps was it feels like a lot of times, like you're on the edge of a cliff, you have a parachute on, you don't know how to use the parachute, but someone comes up behind you and pushes you off and says, you know, good luck. I'll see you down at the bottom. And you're like, I don't even know how to open this thing. I don't know how to use it. What's going like, it's that type of anxiety and panic that I feel in my conversations feels like happening every day where it's like, I've been pushed off this cliff and I kind of know how to use a parachute, but I've never really done it before, but I'm expected. And it's just very anxious and stressful. Um, and I hope I land safely at the bottom. Yeah, That's how so it feels gonna, to me. I'm going to give you the end of the Alps story because the end of the Alps story is as valuable as the beginning of the Alps story. So uh, I was there as a part of a tour group. And uh, I was at the end of the tour, I was going to be meeting my brother who had done the same tour the year before and was there to do a more difficult hike in the Alps. And we were going to overlap for a little bit of time. So I was the anomaly in my group. Most of my group was young athletic adventure hikers who were tracking with their watches, their altitude and their steps and their pace and that sort of thing. Mm. And they were faster than I was by at least 20 minutes on sort of every four hour leg of the hike. And they didn't see the animals that the guide was passing out, pointing out to me. They didn't Mm. see that they... Mm they were so proud of themselves and they got exactly what they wanted out of their vacations. So like no judgment about, cause they got exactly what they wanted out of their vacations. Right. At the very last day, every one of them was injured. I mm. was not injured. They mm. were about to go back to their homes and recover from their vacation at work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I woke up the morning after that tour and I went with my brother on a hike that was the same distance as we had done on a daily basis. Wow. The days it was his warm up mm-hmm. hike for his hike. And 
I don't know that I could have done that pace of hiking indefinitely, but I certainly mm-hmm. felt like if I got up every morning and I hiked that yeah. every morning that I could have done it indefinitely. Yeah. So yeah. they started off so much stronger than I did, mm-hmm. but they, they went home injured and I kept going. Kept That's going. resilience. I mean, that to me is the epitome of resilience. Resilience isn't about for me, like not getting injured or having the perfect conditions and you just kind of breeze through it. It's about when things come up in the moment, how do you react? How do you pivot? How do you take care of yourself so that you can build that stamina up so that you can withstand all the things that come up? It doesn't mean the storm won't come. It's just a matter of how do you kind of adjust your sails in the storm that suit you as a whole person and supports you and what you need in that moment. Um, so I think that's a, a beautiful story. And it, it, it reminds me a lot of just how we do, I think, and a lot of times businesses, business agility wrong and how we have a kind of misconception about what business agility actually is and how to accomplish it. Yeah. I think there's a thing that we do in business as well that plays into this, which is as business leaders often uh, there's a sense that we have to get other people to do the work. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I have discovered is at their heart, everybody actually wants to be a success in their jobs. And if the job is to do the work, actually they want to do the work. And mm-hmm. so actually there's less work for the leaders yeah. than they think there is if they can stop trying to make the people do the work. If you stop trying to make the people do the work and just mm-hmm. be like, oh, look, here's work. And <laughs> by the way, if you do this work, we'll pay you. Right. It's amazing how many people do the work. It's amazing. Oh my gosh. I can't even, so many things were running through my head. I have examples where I tell leaders this and I'm just like, you are getting in you are putting up roadblocks in front of yourself. Like just let them be, let them and do, they do it the work. They want to be helpful and effective. Like they want sure. to be helpful and effective. It just good intentions. Absolutely. Yep. I mean, maybe not always, but good intentions most of the time. And you know, yeah, I get it. But how, how are we putting up roadblocks in front of ourselves? Um, that's the big ruts that I see a lot of times is a lot of these roadblocks we are putting up. So how can we get back into our body how can we be more mindful? How can we start getting more nuanced in our feelings, what's coming up and maybe go a little slower before we might need to go, maybe go slower to go faster. Take that time to be really present in the moment um, and just deal with it moment by moment. And that's how you build that resilience and being able to pivot like you were talking about recentering. And don't forget to play. And the play. Yeah, that's very important. Um, I know we're coming up to the end of the hour. I appreciate your time today, Kate, but I wanted to, I have this little segment that I do just to kind of get to know you a little bit more, um, called leading questions. I have five questions that I wanted to ask you before we sign off for the day. So my first question was, what is your favorite book on your bookshelf? So my bookshelf is absolutely covered with books. I have an enormous, uh, library for a 21st century human being. And <laughs> if I have to name it to one, um, it's actually 
my parenting book that I wrote because I'm so proud of what it symbolizes in terms of my accomplishments. Oh, yay. I'm excited. I can't wait to read it. Um, what is one thing you are most proud about? So this ties in with the parenting book, actually. The thing that I am most proud about is my children needed a different kind of parent than the parent I envisioned being. And I let my children change me into the parent they needed, not the parent I thought I should be. Wow. That is really powerful. The parent that they need. Wow. And just thinking about that from like, again, the highly sensitive route and the needs that kids have and how society doesn't always fit that well. So that's beautiful. Um, tell me about an influential person in your life and how they impacted you. So this one, I'm going to go with my grandmother. Mm. Um, my grandmother was married to a highly sensitive person and her daughter was a highly sensitive person in ways that were sort of acting out kind of sensitivities. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. my grandfather was literally a nuclear physicist. Um, and, um, it turns out that my grandmother was also highly sensitive and empathic in an emotional EQ kind of way. And the impact that she had on me was that she was the person in my childhood who saw who I was, not who they wanted me to be. Wow. That, wow. That's very powerful. Who you are. That's so important. Oh, what a blessing to have that in your life. Yeah. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would, where would it be? All right. So we're going to stay on the family theme. Okay. (laughs) Um, my, uh, my parents live in this town in the Finger Lakes region of New York called Ithaca, and it's where Cornell University mm-hmm. is. And mm-hmm. my family has been in and out of Cornell for as long as I've been in the States. I was in the States. I'm in Canada now. Um, and I had an aunt and uncle who were there. And then I was there as a student. And then my parents moved there after I did. And now they're there. And it's just this beautiful place where there's hills and deep lakes, Mm. amazing gorges, and Cornell is a real intellectual stimulation place. And so it's a really great place for someone like me who is a bit of an intellectual geek to be in nature with a bunch of really, really smart people. Yeah. Sounds like blending again. Like you were talking about earlier. It's more blending. Absolutely. Yep. That's awesome. And the last one was the most important lesson you have learned in your life. We're, we're standing on it. Our whole conversation today has been around Mm -hmm. the most important thing is that, um, like the body is where everything starts Mm -hmm. and if we don't approach the way that we are in the world from the understanding that we start as human beings with human biology, we get in our way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think what you're talking about for me sounds like acceptance, almost acceptance of your whole self, all parts of you. um, And the fact that you had a grandmother who you know, saw you for who you, you were, not who they wanted you to be, I think is an amazing gift because I think a lot of us have trouble 
just getting to the point of accepting who we are, all of us, the sensitive, the analytical, the inner critic, all the stuff, our whole being. And I think, yeah, I think that's definitely a life journey and what a blessing to have such a impactful person in your life early on. Um, that's beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Kate, for your time today. I really enjoyed, I probably could have talked to you for another three hours, but I think we I don't want to, yep. <laughs> I don't want to bore the listeners, um, with, but I appreciate all of your insights and perspectives. And I know I've taken a lot away from our conversation and definitely business agility and how to bring more play and creativity and our bodies and mindfulness into, you know, the business world and just being in the moment. Well, thank you so much for the invitation to be a part of this podcast. I could talk about this stuff forever. And um, it really makes such a huge difference to have people hear this and think about it and take whatever ideas they get and like sprinkle them into the, you know, the next conversation that they have with somebody that is similar. So um, thanks for doing the good work of getting it out there. Yeah. Thank you for agreeing. And um, yeah, I look forward to future conversations. Me too.